I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take a story in the media each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny, a planner in Kansas City. And today I am once again joined by my co host, Chuck, founder of Strong Towns. Welcome back. How are you hey, doing? Thanks so much. Fantastic. Uh, we're back in nice weather again in Minnesota. So all the world is good. Yeah, it's warming up here too. We had snow earlier this week, which I was very yeah. disappointed about. We had three days of snow and we had the ground completely covered with snow at one point. So, Ugh. yeah. Yeah. Unacceptable April. in April. Unacceptable. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, Get it. Let's go, spring. Come on. I know. Come on. So, <laughs> so today we are going to be covering an article that. I think it's going to be kind of fun because I want to bring up some arguments that were made by you a couple of years ago and kind of look back on that and bring it into the future and the existing context. The article was published in Arconnect by Catherine Grimapang, and it's called Amazon is Buying Up Dead Malls, Adaptive Reuse or Eating Its Prey. So as we all know, shopping malls have been on the decline for many years now, largely due to the rise of e-commerce, and America's favorite online retailer is now purchasing up those shopping malls to convert into fulfillment centers. In fact, they have already begun between 2016 and 2019, Amazon completed 25 conversions with COVID-19 expediating the death of retail some mall owners today are now faced with this opportunity to pivot and get out of the retail game entirely by selling their, their properties to Amazon. So whenever I see an article about Amazon, I have a knee-jerk reaction where I just want to throw all the criticism on Amazon and I get upset about it. But I did come across a piece that you wrote back in 2017 responding to the case against Amazon, which was written by Kia Wilson. And when I, so I started with her piece. Um, <laughs> this is feeling like one of those, this is your life, Chuck. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so I started with her piece because it, it reflected my views on Amazon as this mega company that it has this rising presence in our lives. And now it's becoming a rising presence in our built environment, apparently. But you wrote a rebuttal, which I thought was I thought it was pretty good and it was very optimistic and you brought up the the points around really how how Amazon is the natural outcome of a centralized top-down economic system with all its distortions and and its incentives and the corruption and what we're seeing with Amazon is a business model that is really emerging to replace the business model that was there before which you know, it's basically beating big box at its own game. You also referred to Amazon as the methadone of our crack economy, which I thought was a great line. <laughs> oh, I, I have colorful lines every now and then. <laughs> yeah, but, but you have this optimistic outlook about, you know, maybe it will help us transition into a more localized economy in some way, ways that could help us become more, less dependent on consumption and maybe helping us 
uh, grow manufacturing closer to where we consume things. So here we are in 2021, and this article was interesting because it definitely shows how Amazon is eating its prey. But I wanted to know from you if you still have this optimistic view of the transition that we're seeing. I am on the fence around like what to think about Amazon. I have my gut feeling that you know it's it's really not a good thing, but maybe maybe I'm wrong and there's something that I'm missing here. I'm not a an Amazon like Bobo. Like I don't think Amazon's the greatest. Like I don't think Amazon's the greatest company in the world. I don't own any Amazon stock. I wouldn't because I don't want to be part of that. I do think that a lot of their anti-competitive practices are really, really disturbing. They're they're very disturbing. Um, but so are the anti-competitive practices of Walmart and Target and Costco and and these other big box stores. My my comment on on them being the methadone to our crack economy is is not to say that like they're good. It's it's to point to this thing that they're I think a transition. They're a foil. Uh, and I I might have probably used in that piece too. The enemy of my enemy is is my friend. And I think you know we can go back in time. And we can look and, you know, I, I remember as a kid getting the Montgomery Wards catalog. I read this book series to my daughters when they were little uh, about a family living in rural Utah and in the late 1800s. And guess what they had? The Montgomery Wards catalog. And they would order things and it would come on a train like three months later and they would offload it. And then they would, you know, show up with their wagon and bring it to their house this is a model that's been with us for a long, long time. And whether it's Montgomery Wards or when I was growing up, it was JCPenney. We would order our school clothes from JCPenney. They would show up six weeks later. Or whether it's Amazon doing it you know, next day with a fulfillment center, there's a certain model there that I think will always be with us to one degree or another. And I think the question is what its size and scope would be and and what it surplants and replaces. The big box model today replaces everything. It wipes out the entire downtown, the entire economic ecosystem. It replaces everything. And in doing so, it creates this like devastating financial transaction for cities and this really like devastating auto-oriented landscape behind it that that from a strong towns perspective is really really destructive. Amazon doesn't solve the economic side of that problem. But it does allow us to start reseeding and putting back together the development side, the building side. And let me just give this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll kick it back to you. I remember sitting with Ian Rasmussen, one of our board members at his, uh, his condo unit in Queens. We're sitting there and we're talking about Amazon. And he made the argument then, and it's in an old Strong Towns podcast. It might not even be available anymore. But he made the, the argument then that having Amazon allows him to live in urban lifestyle in an urban area without having to have a car, without having to drive out to, you know, the big box store and, and stock up. Uh, sure, he could shop locally, but those options aren't really available because they've been driven out by the big box stores. And so for him, the option is drive to the big box store, Amazon or nothing. And he said, I wish there was something, I wish there was a third option, but of the two of them, one is a very suburban development model and one of them is compatible with urban life. And so his argument was, let's reestablish urban life as like a good thing. And Amazon can help us in that transition. 
And then let's reestablish as part of that a local economic ecosystem that will, in many ways, supplant uh, what we need from Amazon. And, and I actually think that is a localist viable strategy, one that comes with this really nasty ally for a while, the methadone. <laughs> the methadone. How you think of Amazon really depends on what your perspective is, right? I think if you're living in a post-1970s or post-1990s suburb and your Walmart or your former mall is being transitioned into, into a fulfillment center, you're probably not going to be very happy about that. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised that the downfall of big box retail might, might not mean that big boxes are replaced with something particularly lovable and new, but rather something that, you know, it, it's, it's just being reused and it's not necessarily more inviting or engaging in the built environment. What I what I think is interesting is that like the article talks about American malls as a typology and the post mall future of American commercial architecture, and it's not clear to me that a post mall future necessarily means that the physical landscape improves in every case. So because big box stores and malls in a lot of cases are perfectly set up to be distribution facilities of some sort. If you look at Google Maps and you look at two aerials of a shopping center and another of like an industrial warehousing district, there's not a ton of differences in the overall format of these places. I think the biggest differences are going to be the quality of site design and pavement and landscaping, things like that. But as far as physical layout and trucking access and building typology goes, these commercial areas are basically primed to be upscale versions of warehousing and distribution districts. And people living around these areas, I think, are going to potentially not not be very happy to welcome Amazon into their community because that it's no longer going to have this facade of not being a warehousing area. Right. It's an interesting point because as you're saying that, I'm thinking, yes, it's, it's, they're very similar industrial warehousing areas and like the 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 strip we have out on the edge of town with all the big box stores and franchise restaurants as an aerial they look very very similar there's a couple striking differences though the the first one is you know the sheer amount of parking and the second one is more invisible but i think is visible to strong towns listeners and that is the commitment in underground utilities if you have a big warehouse on the edge of town and you've got, you know, 50 robots and 10 people working there. You don't need a mile of sewer pipe and water system ringing that thing. You don't need, you know, $2 million worth of infrastructure to that site for that. And so a lot of the commitments that we've made to these places that, that I think in my mind are our future, and I, I don't use this word, you know, in a derogatory way per se, but but I think these are our future slums. I mean, these are our places that are really going to struggle because they're not financially viable. There's no place there. The buildings are not, they're cheap, they're junky, they're designed to be throwaway kind of buildings. Um, once they pass through that first life cycle, uh, there's really nothing to keep them from going into just a, a broad and rapid decline, except for this kind of psychology we have where we've already invested lots of money and we need to see that investment through. I think that's the rub. And, and so to me, I get really frustrated with cities 
when they will say, oh, our mall is failing. We can't acknowledge that this was a terrible investment that we never should have made and that was really bad for our community. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to put a bunch of subsidies into trying to save the mall and save the developer from out of state who's coming in to try to, you know, put in a pawn shop and a tattoo parlor uh, connected to like, you know, a city library on the one end. It's, it's like, let's make something out of this. The other thing I get frustrated with then is where they come in and say, well, it's going to be an Amazon fulfillment center. And of course, Amazon never goes and does anything without massive amounts of on the ground subsidy. I dealt with this in Akron. I dealt with this in, in Shakopee here in Minnesota. You know, here's millions and millions of dollars of subsidies to come in and put this in, in this place. And really a place that needs to die and go away and be abandoned. And, and, and the, the site raised and cleared and made into a farm or something because of our commitment to it and our our kind of prior desires for this area we can't admit our failure and so we double triple quadruple down on it i think amazon eases us into that it gives us like a a transition to i think what ultimately is an abandonment of these sites or a very low use of these sites and hopefully can do it in a way that psychologically allows us to 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 you know bridge that gap between our aspirations and what reality has given us. Well, yeah. And let's think about it from kind of the public officials point of view, because that's something that I wanted to get to, because obviously Amazon is going to come into town and try to get, you know, they're going to have a pitch, an economic development pitch, and they are going to want subsidies from communities. If you think of an overall region, you probably have a collection of municipalities that you know, many of them may have sites that are viable for these Amazon distribution centers, but Amazon is not going to go to, to every site and convert them all. I mean, they're going to have a, a limited number of, of investments made. So they're, they're going to pick of dying carcasses to feast off of. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and so from the city officials point of view, they may feel a pretty large amount of pressure to make use of these sites, because if you look at how a lot of these communities you know, are able to sustain themselves, it's through tax base. It's not through their property tax base. Typically, these sites these commercial sites don't produce the property tax revenue needed to sustain the infrastructure, like not anywhere close. And it's the sales taxes that are really driving the the city's budget. So all of a sudden the mall goes out of business, these big box areas go out of business and they have a huge site with a ton of infrastructure and it no longer has this growing sales tax in, in order to support it into the long run. That that's going to put a lot of pressure on city officials to basically sell the farm in order to get something going. Are there other pathways for people? I mean, I think you you just mentioned kind of the triage <laughs> idea, but you know m- maybe there are other ways that these sites can be used. I know in my hometown, the mall, or at least adjacent to my hometown, I think it's being redeveloped completely as subdivisions. I mean, that's not going to be viable in every place, but. I think that there is kind of an opportunity that you could walk away from these sites completely. Yeah. This is so difficult. I wrote about this in chapter six of my book because I think psychologically, this is the most difficult thing we have to deal with. It's not the most difficult problem, but it's it's the hardest thing for affluent people to acknowledge that we screwed up and we screwed up in a big way. Let's take the sales tax thing first. 
I did some research on this and, and I was unable to determine, but I, I, I'm going to go with what my, my gut instinct is. Amazon fulfillment centers are not where the transaction happens. If you go to Walmart and you buy something, you're paying sales tax at the point of sale at Walmart. If you go to you know Costco and you, you're paying the sales tax there. If you are uh, buying from Amazon, you're buying on a web service somewhere, you're having the package fulfilled at a fulfillment center. It might be the one in your community. It might be one from somewhere else. Who knows? Where is the sales tax collected? And in Minnesota, it appears that Amazon is paying state sales tax, but not paying local sales tax. That makes some logistical sense. Our, our law actually does not require them to pay state sales tax. And so they're doing that kind of as a way, I think, to forestall you know, future whatever. But if you live in a place that has a local sales tax, there's nothing about a fulfillment center that creates a taxable transaction. Like that's not where the point of sale is happening. And so that's gone anyway. Just say goodbye to it. Like stop pretending that somehow getting this thing in is going to do anything for you from a sales tax standpoint. The property tax is the same. I mean, you, you're, you're talking about properties that have really low financial productivity at their peak condition, like at their best. When, when the big box store is brand new and everything is going on great, it has the lowest financial productivity of any commercial building that you'll find. They're cheap, junky buildings on huge lots. And so by converting it into more of a warehouse, all you do is just lean into that cheap, junky nature of it. You just drop that value down even less. If I'm talking to local officials, what I would point out to them is that a dollar invested today, let me back up even a little bit. I would point out to them that your core downtown on a per square foot basis, per acre basis is way more productive even if it's run down, even if it's dilapidated, even if it's not as glitzy or flashy than the big box store out on the edge or the mall out on the edge. It's, it's way more. And even in sales tax, that is almost certainly going to be true. I see that in my community. We've seen that in other places where Urban 3 has modeled it. And so you are essentially looking at a situation where you can either invest in A, a downtown that is already productive, that is doing really well, where if you kind of kind of nudge it along and bring it along, we'll do even better. And that will be a great return. Or you can invest in B, this money suck you have out on the edge that has lost you tons of money, created a lot of liability, and uh, will continue to lose you money if you put your money out there and, and, and try to continue it. But you can save some face and not look as bad like you screwed up out there on the edge. That's a psychological problem, not a financial problem. If cities actually were run like a business, this would not be a discussion at all. It would just be done. Like we would lop off that loser division, sell it off for spare parts and move on. Because we're a city, because we're this collective of people coming together to do something, uh, we have these psychological human things we have to deal with. And, uh, and, and that is the biggest hurdle to overcome. Yeah, definitely the biggest hurdle to overcome because, you know, when you make a bad investment, the next step is not to double down on the bad investment. <laughs> you know, the next thing is to pivot and figure out where a good investment would be. And you just mentioned it's in those places like our downtowns, um, you know, our old town centers, things like that, where you are going to get 
the biggest bang for your buck in terms of the actual public side of things, the investments that we make collectively to support these places. And these are the places that are not necessarily going to be replaced by Amazon. There's a lot more going on in these types of places from services to residential and you know all kinds of things happening that really can't be replaced by Amazon because I don't believe Amazon can replace human interaction. I think human interaction is still something that people want even after 2020, unless I'm just a crazy person who still likes other humans. But yeah, I, I think- No, I that, think you're right. Yeah, I think people want to be around other people and it, you can't replace it with Amazon. And Amazon can certainly replace the big box model and the mall model. And, you know, in some ways that is okay, um, even though, you know, I still have my knee-jerk reaction to Amazon and am not, you know, very happy with a lot of their business practices. But again, they are operating in a system that um, rewards the type of behavior that they, they've been playing. So don't hate the player, hate the game, I guess. Exactly. I, I, I do think, you know, if you are a local business. I think Amazon, if your choice is between having a Walmart target ecosystem out on the edge or having an Amazon fulfillment center, I think the Amazon fulfillment center gives you a slightly better advantage to provide value add, customer support, customer service, upselling, you know, patron relationships. It, it, it gives you a business model niche that I think can start small and expand over time and ultimately, in my hope, you know, replace Amazon for many things. Most communities are not going to make their own iPods and, uh, you know, toilet paper and toothpaste any more than they make their own automobiles and tires and, and you know, that kind of thing. That being said, there's a lot of business locally for fixing cars and replacing tires and doing those kind of things. I think that there can be a lot of local businesses that get started doing other things that are maybe not bulk retail, um, but are value add around that, that can ultimately start to integrate some of that retail back in, in a way that Amazon's going to find difficult to, to compete with. And I also think, you know, Amazon has, during the pandemic, has gone from being the Goliath, you know, behemoth kind of thing that that was overwhelming to now what is really hard to argue is not like a national utility. I mean, it is the dominant player in, in nearly every retail market. And I think at some point, you know, when you look at Amazon's stock price, you're looking at a stock price where the shareholders that are savvy are essentially assuming that this thing is either going to A, become a monopoly and own everything, or B, be broken up into constituent parts. Because if it's not, if it's just going to continue as it is, it's not worth anywhere near what its stock price is at. Well, it's 2021 now. Let's check back in four years in 2025 <laughs> <laughs> to see what the next step of Amazon is at that point. I'm I almost want to check back every four years just to see where we're at because it it's kind of a fascinating story because we are seeing a pretty rapid shift in retail and it'll be interesting to see what happens with a lot of these existing retail spaces um, that have been overbuilt. We've known that they've been overbuilt in most regions across the country for many, many years. And so, you know, but let's see what happens, I guess. Yeah, very true. And you know, as long as we continue to do crazy things economically, 
it's really hard to say what will happen. You know, we are in very strange times. So it's, it's predicting the future is hard in the best of times, but we're in such unprecedented like economic conditions. Who has any clue what's going to happen? Yeah. Who knows? Well, that is all the time we have for today. Before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we've been watching, reading, listening to, anything else that's been going on in our life. So Chuck, what has been on your radar? So I started this book. Okay. Nassim Taleb, I came across somewhere, some reading list of books that he recommended and it's a fascinating list. Like I went through and I looked, I'm like, wow, okay. And one jumped out at me because there really was only one like throwaway fiction book. There was some fiction, but it was mostly like old humanities kind of books, which were, you know, also very good. But there was this book called The Secret of Fatima. And it just looked like a standard, like, I don't know, go on vacation and buy a page turner kind of book. And he like highly recommended it. And so I bought this book and I'm like, I'm going to try this. And I've been reading it the last week. It is a horrible book. It is terrible. <laughs> like I, I keep reading this going, I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, maybe 40% of the way done. And I'm like, I keep waiting for the writing to get better or the dialogue to get better. The, something will happen. And I'm like, that's absurd. And then the characters just act like nothing just happened. And, 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 I'm like, none of this makes sense. And I, I'm trying to figure out if I bought the wrong book. Like if he actually meant like a different Secret of Fatima book, because I'm sure that there's a, you know, because I, what I bought was would not be like a very thoughtful book. It would be like a Daniel still meets the Da Vinci Code or something. I mean, it's it was a dumb book. Maybe so, he threw it in as a goof. Maybe, maybe it was a gag on people who, you know, didn't read the other parts of the list. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like I've wasted a few nights this week, but I'm, I'm, I may bail on it now just because yeah. I've, I've given it like, I would have bailed, you know, a, a, two nights ago, except it was Nassim who recommended this. And so I'm like, okay, I really trust his recommendations, but yeah, maybe, maybe he's just trolling us. Yeah, maybe he is trolling us. I, I wouldn't put it past him. No, I wouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I actually, I'm continuing to read Walkable City. Um, so that's been on my radar for the past week. This week, I'm actually looking into finally buying a new mountain bike, which I'm really, really, really excited about. We've been, you know, saving up. I don't know if you know this, Chuck, but we have a landscape business, just very small mm -hmm. landscape business. Yeah, you um, told me. So, you know, that that is going to help support this initiative of getting a new mountain bike. It's my goal to actually learn how to do like tricks and things like that without completely falling and falling on my face and injuring myself. So um, I need a proper bike to do that. So once I do that, I will go down to Bentonville and uh, ride the trails and enjoy the summer. I'm very, very excited about it. Well, supposedly, and I say supposedly because I, I'm not an expert in this, but supposedly the Cuyuna uh, trail system in the neighboring city of Brainerd is like the best in Minnesota. It's really? supposed to be fantastic. Yes. And I have a lot of friends who mountain bike there a lot. And I've seen, you know, videos and images and it, it's, it's pretty cool. So if you, you know, get to the point where you're like, eh, maybe I should go check out the Brainerd Lakes area. 
Um, <laughs> you have a place to stay and bring your mountain bike and maybe I'll even go with you. That would be kind of fun. I'm more of a road bike, uh, short distance, non-aggressive kind of biker, but I could give it a try. Yeah, you should give it a try. I actually, um, when last time when we had Joe Minicozzi on, we, we stayed after on the call and talked for a little bit, and he was recommending that we go out and ride some of the trails um, in his part of the world, Asheville, Ash- yeah. North Carolina, which I've always wanted to do. It, it seems to be a little bit of a rockier terrain. It's very different than Missouri where in Arkansas because it's basically dirt. So if you fall, it's really not that big of a deal. Whereas if you go to a really rocky terrain like Colorado or something, when you fall, it's like surprisingly painful because you're falling on a very different, very different density of, of uh, land beneath you. So it's not fun. Our trails are around the mining pits. And so it's interesting because I live in a part of the world that is very flat. Uh, two miles of glaciers came over this area you know, 10,000 years ago and flattened it out. And then when they receded, dropped all of this sand and gravel here. The pits, the mining pits, actually are a place where there's some man-made topography and they take advantage of that with these trails. So it is uh, it is an area not quite up to the Asheville standard of topography, but uh, it is kind of an interesting landscape, uh, particularly here for central Minnesota. You've got nice lakes, you've got the woods, and then you've got these trails running through. So I think you would like it, Abby. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm looking for a house nice. for you here. I'm planning your eventual, I, I plan, I'm planning everybody's <laughs> eventual move to Brainerd. I know. I'm starting to think that you're a real estate agent on the side. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want more friends here. I, I want, I want to do upzone from the front porch with you. Like every, you know, every, every, every couple of days, that would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds very nice. <laughs> Yeah, and you'll get your nice real estate commission when everybody moves <laughs> to Brainerd. Yeah, I've actually had that thought before. Like, what if you just got a ver- a bunch of um, similarly minded people to just all go move to a town at the same time and and build a strong town? That would be kind don't, of cool. Don't get me started. There was a group that really wanted to do that at at one point, and. It's funny because in uh, Catholic circles, there's this book called the Benedict Option, which is basically like, okay, the world is not going our way. Let's let's retreat back and live our own life, and then you know reemerge when conditions are better. And I I find the principle antithetical to my life. So I want to make every place better. You know, like I want to help everybody get better, whether they're Catholic or not, or whether they're, you know, from Minnesota or not. And and so, yeah, but I hear you. I would love more and more people to move here and be part of my neighborhood because this is a great place and it can always be better. And where can they contact you for real estate services? <laughs> Just hit me up on Twitter. I'll send you all the local listings at Excellent. CL Marone. Yeah, I'm totally in. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for joining me today. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. Take care.